So who did, who did something nice this last week? Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Psalm 14 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. I'm not, this isn't a trick question. Uh, I'm, not gonna ask, I'm not asking if you earned your way into a righteous standing before God during this last week, because I know the answer to that. You didn't. But I'm just asking during the last week, who did, did you do some nice stuff? I hope you did. I hope you did some nice things, some considerate things, some generous things. But here's the real question that I want to get us started with this morning. Those, those things that you did the, this last week, do you know why you did them? Do you know why you did those good things? I just want to start by telling a story that, that maybe explains what I'm getting at here. Uh, pastor and writer Ted Tripp tells a true story that happened to him once on a Sunday morning. Uh, once after a worship service, a man in his church came up to him quite worked up about something. It turns out that this man had witnessed a young boy stealing money from the offering plate as it went by earlier that morning. And this man was very distraught. He was concerned for the young boy. Uh, So Pastor Ted suggested, well, why don't you go tell the boy's father, and that way he could benefit from some fatherly correction. A few minutes later, the boy and his father came into Pastor Ted's office and asked to talk privately. The boy produced two dollars that he confessed to have taken out of the offering plate that morning. He was in tears, professing his sorrow, asking for forgiveness. So Pastor Ted began to speak. He said, Charlie, I'm so glad that someone saw what you did today. What a wonderful mercy God has given you to not get away with it. God has spared you the hard heart that comes when we sin and get away with it. Can't you see how gracious he's been to you? Charlie looked the pastor in the eye and he nodded and said, yes. You know, Charlie, pastor went on, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came because people like you and your father and like me, we have hearts that want to steal. And you see how bold and brazen we can get to even want to steal from the offerings that God's people have given. But God had such love for wicked boys and men that he sent his son to change them from the inside out and make them people who are givers, not takers. Near the end, something happened. Charlie, who had earlier been in tears and was hanging his head down in a show of repentance, all of a sudden he began to weep uncontrollably, violently. And Charlie suddenly broke down and he reached into his shirt and he pulled out a $20 bill. See, he had been ready that whole time to put on a show of repentance, to do what looked right, and the whole time to hold on to the the full amount that he had taken. But thankfully, his heart was struck when he heard how the gospel applied to that specific situation in his life, and God brought him to confess what he was doing. We can only hope he didn't have a 50 in his shoe. But, But the point that I want to make with that story is this. Outward obedience doesn't always line up with inward motivation. There can be a huge disconnect in your life and in my life. We can appear to do lots of good things, but the reasons that motivate them aren't always the reasons that should be in our heart. Sometimes we know exactly what we're doing, like Charlie in the story, but sometimes we have no idea that we're even doing it. I want us to begin this morning by asking really honestly, why do I do the things that I do? Why? The fact is, lots of people do all sorts of good things in this world, but they do them for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes the motivation is fear of consequences if you don't. Uh, Maybe it's a concern that you want your reputation to look good. You want to look good in other people's eyes, so you do those good things. Some people do it to deal with guilt or to avoid dealing with shame. Some people out of fear of getting caught if they do the wrong thing. 
Some people have a desire to just look good to the people around them. Probably a huge amount of what all of us do just comes from habits, either good or bad. That's just what I do. I don't think about it. It's just what I do. If you have ever felt the pressure to do your good deeds in front of people's eyes, if you felt that burning need to get acknowledged for what you're doing, or if you don't even know why you do the things that you do, then the part of God's word that we're going to hear from this morning might be exactly what you need to hear from today. So I just want you to honestly begin asking yourself as you're sitting there in your hearts, why do I do the things that I do? And as you're asking that, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. There should be spare Bibles in, under the seats in front of you, or if you, if you can't find one, put up your hand. Someone will help you find a Bible, I'm sure, an usher or someone. Um, the book of Hebrews is about nine-tenths of the way through the Bible, if you don't know your Bible very well. Uh, we're going to be turning to Hebrews chapter 13 and looking at verses 1 through 6. And Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, is going to ask us to love one another. It'll ask us to do that by practicing hospitality, by practicing comfort, by respecting marriage vows, and by not being selfish with our money. And it's pretty hard to argue against any of that. There isn't a long line of people protesting those things. Everyone pretty much agrees they're good things to do. Pretty much all of you should already know that those are things you should be doing. I really hope, or at least assume, that not many of you came here this morning needing to be told that being loving and hospitable and kind and faithful and generous are things that you need to be doing. But the text we're coming to does more than just tell us that we should do those things. It tells us why we should be doing them. And having the why revealed to us is very important because it helps us draw the connection between what we believe and what we do. Before we go further, let's just pray quickly. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we acknowledge that it's only through the gift of your Holy Spirit that we, were, we are able to read it and, and have it be applied to our lives. So we pray this morning that, he's, that as we spend time worshiping you by learning from your word, that it will be you who softens our hearts and opens our eyes and reveals to us just exactly how much we need you. Give us a glimpse of who you are this morning, who we are, And then, Lord, by your grace, give us a glimpse of your Son and help us to move our faith and our trust into what you did in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let brotherly love continue. The concept of brotherly love is a pretty big one in the New Testament. One of the many pictures we get to describe what it's like to be part of God's family, part of God's redeemed kingdom under Jesus Christ, is that it's a family. The church is the family of God. Aaron and Parker couldn't have sung a better song for us this morning in helping illustrate that, that God is our perfect, loving Father. Fellow believers are brothers and sisters. 
But God has adopted those who have come to him through faith in Jesus Christ as his children, and we are expected to act that way to our fellow brothers and sisters. We are, of course, to act like our Heavenly Father by loving all people, the same way God mercifully shows his, his compassion on all people. But in a very special way, we are supposed to love the church as if it were our family. Because it is. Uh, there was a man named uh, Tertullian. He, he lived, he was one of the church fathers. He lived and wrote about 200 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it wasn't exactly popular to be a Christian at that period in time, but Tertullian was. And he wrote something about the way brotherly love was defining the entire Christian community. Uh, it's something that's still being quoted today. It's actually being quoted right now by me, obviously, but it's, this is something that people quote who aren't even pastors. It's, it's still something that, that lives and means something today. He was imagining what the rest of the world must say about these Christians. Most of it wasn't very flattering, what the world would have to say about them. But even their enemies have to say this. See how they love one another. Tertullian considered that the church should be full of such love that even while the rest of the world is mocking us, they would have no choice but to admit that that love those Christians show, that's something else. See how those Christians love one another. I mean, I know we say we love each other, but whatever they're doing over there, that's not what we do. That's something different. I can't explain how those Christians love each other. In the book of 1 John, the idea of brotherly love is actually one of the tests that can help you confirm you really are a Christian. 1 John 4, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. John was probably thinking of Jesus' own words that we have recorded for us in John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, he's talking to his disciples, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So according to Jesus, this love will be the main, if one of the major, if not the primary way the rest of the world will know those people are his followers because of the love they have for one another. So we read, let brotherly love continue at the beginning of our passage this morning, but let's just remember what's come before that in the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews doesn't start with chapter 13. That would be strange. Uh, Let's remember all that we've been learning so far that, uh, that Pastor Dan has been preaching through the entire book. We've seen that in Jesus, God has provided a savior and a great high priest who is greater than the entire Old Testament system of laws and priests and sacrifice and offerings. In fact, Jesus has been shown to be so much greater than that old system that he's done away with them. They're totally obsolete now. Not only is he greater than them, but he is what they were pointing towards all along. And because of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, the entire old system is now absolutely unnecessary. The forgiveness of sins and the removal of guilt and shame that are required for a relationship with a perfect, holy God are found entirely in Jesus and only in Jesus. That means all the old offerings are obsolete. And that's how we come to the end of chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here's a question that comes to mind. If the entire system of offering and sacrifices has been fully done away with through Jesus, then how do we now offer to God acceptable worship? What kind of offerings do we bring? In this new situation we've entered into, in a life that's been transformed by grace, what kind of offering remains for us to bring to God? And the beginning of the answer is what we find in chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Show hospitality. Remember those who are in prison. Let marriage be kept in honor. Keep your life free from the love of money. What offering is left for us to bring to God? Everything. All that we are, everything is now, now has the potential to be a holy and pleasing sacrifice to God because of Jesus Christ. So when we encounter the command, let brotherly love continue, this is not the beginning of a recommended to-do list, and it's not, uh, it's not something we're supposed to do because it's going to go make the world a better place, although it probably will. It's not something we're supposed to do to make up for all the bad things we've done in our lives, When we read those words, let brotherly love continue, we are reading a description of what it now means to worship the God who loved us by first sending his son into the world to rescue sinners like us. If you only remember one idea this morning, make it this one. The love that we now show to one another is, more than anything, an act of worship to God. When our motivations are properly aligned with God's word and God's will, then when we love others, it's first and foremost an act of worship. That means that contrary to every natural, humanistic, self-important, selfish, fleshly instinct that I have in my body, that the way that I treat other people should not really be about them. It shouldn't really be about me either. The way I treat other people, it, it, it shouldn't be about how they make me feel or whether or not they deserve it or whether or not they're going to thank me properly for it. So interestingly enough, the Philadelphia, which is the word for brotherly love, the brotherly love we're supposed to show for our brothers and sisters ends up having a lot less to do with who our brothers and sisters are and has everything to do with showing the world who our Father is, our Heavenly Father. So the way we love the people around us and the way we treat people should be an expression of worship to the God who loved us first. Now, how is, that going to work at, how is that going to work itself out in a way that looks and operates differently from all the other good stuff people are doing for all sorts of other reasons in the world? Well, verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 help us out a little bit here. Because here are some real-life examples, that once we get into the specifics, how this is actually going to play out when we roll up our sleeves and we start doing it. Look at what's going on in verses 2 and 3. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We're not just being told what to do. We're also being told why. We're being being given a reason why to do it. In verse 3, we're told to remember those who are suffering for their faith. But we're also told why. We need to take very seriously the family connection that exists between our brothers and sisters in the faith and remember them when they suffer as if we were there with them. And to care for those who have been mistreated since, after all, you also are in the body, which is another way of saying it could very well be you 
you too are in the body, and you too have a body. And no believer is above suffering for their faith in Christ. That, that could easily be you in the same situation. So think about those people as if you were really there with them, as if it was you. In verse 2, we're told to show hospitality to strangers. Why should I do that, you ask? Well, writes the author of Hebrews, because there have been some people in the past who did that very thing and were actually being visited by angels. I want to be really clear on something here. I am not saying that if you start opening up your house to to, uh, every stranger that you possibly can, that you're going to get to meet some angels. Uh, It'll be just, oh, just like that show, Touched by an Angel. I love that show. No. No, it is not. It is not like that show, Touched by an Angel. It's not like that. The reference here is probably, if you want to read them, to Old Testament events like Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 uh, or Gideon over in Judges chapter 6. You can go read those stories if you want. But the intent here in Hebrews has a lot to do with the very last word of verse 2. Unawares. In other words, the good things that were done that are, or that should be done when you show hospitality to other people should not be done for any foreseeable reward here in this world. If anything good is going to come from it as a reward, that's going to be entirely up to God, our Father in heaven who sees what is done in secret. But there are lots of ways of doing good things that actually have self-serving motives worked into them. What comes to mind for me as the biggest example is the way these giant corporations in our world tend to make a really generous show of a donation to charity, but the reason that they're doing it is so that they get a reputation for being generous. Uh, A study in 2010 revealed that McHappy Day, uh, that magical day of the year when eating at McDonald's can make you feel good about yourself, uh, McHappy Day resulted in an estimated $6.4 million being donated to Ronald McDonald House. $6.4 million. That's a lot of money. Or at least it sounds like a lot until you realize that the company spent about three times that much advertising the fact that they were giving the money to Ronald McDonald House. They spent $18 million telling everyone that they were giving $6 million to charity. I I don't want to be too jaded here. Is it a good thing that McDonald's helps families with children in hospitals? Is it a good thing that Tim Hortons funds summer camps for underprivileged kids? Absolutely. It's a good thing. Uh, But let's just be honest about the motivations that are involved, and let's not give ourselves a free pass when it comes to the motivations that are involved in some of the good things we do sometimes. When my son Matthew was two and a half years old, we were, teaching him, uh, we were teaching him how to share his ice cream. And it was going great. You know, Every time he would share a spoonful with someone, we would all clap and applaud. And he was learning that sharing was such a fun thing to do, which, by the way, is actually an example of the sneaky way that selfish motivation get rolled into doing something good. We, we were teaching Matthew, you'll feel good about yourself if you do something good, and that's why you should do something good. Um, but don't worry, though, someday I'll preach this sermon to him and straighten him out. But, but, but anyway, he was learning that sharing was fun. And then all of a sudden, something dawned on him. He realized what would be even more fun. And he declared, I want to share this all by myself. As you can imagine, that was a humbling moment for mom and dad. We thought we were off to such a great start to teach our son being so generous at such a young age. But he had just said out loud what most of us keep hidden from ourselves, even in our own hearts. And that's this. The best way to do it is to find a way that looks like you're doing something good 
while you're actually just serving yourself. If the love that we show in all sorts of different ways here in the community and and here in the church, if the love that we show is supposed to be an offering of worship, then it is a serious thing to hold something back. It's a serious thing to do it with mixed motives. To say and think and boast that we do it in response to God's grace when we're actually doing it for ourselves. So we began this morning by asking ourselves, why do I do that? And I want you to keep that question before you. Why do I do the good things that I do? And if everything we do with our new life in Christ has the potential to be an act of worship, then we need to add a second question. Who or what am I worshiping when I do that? Who or what am I worshiping when I do these things that I do every day and every week without really thinking about them? And when we move on to verse 4, we read, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and that the marriage bed be undefiled. We see once again there isn't just a command, but there's also a reason, and the reason is tied up with who God is. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, if you're wondering to yourself, how does marriage fit as an example of the larger theme here of let brotherly love continue, you've asked a very good penetrating question. Uh, One which I'm not able to answer fully this morning, but I do want to point you in the direction of, out in the foyer there, um, Table Talk for the month of November has as their topic the Christian sexual ethic. And this came from the table right out in the foyer. The Christian sexual ethic, pretty daunting, I know. Not exactly what most of us think as relaxing reading. It, it get, gets our nerve, our, you know, we, we get tense when we think about the topic. But the fact is that knowing how to explain how we should deal with issues of sexuality from God's word and how the gospel shapes the way we think about and redeem those kinds of relationships is a really valuable thing to be able to do. And this has been really well written. So I would encourage you to take advantage of it and, and read through it. Um, I'm just going to read you a brief little tidbit as kind of a, a preview of what's in there, uh, specifically on the topic of how can we, by looking after our marriages, be a blessing not just to us, but to, to the people around us. We must once more set before the world the wonder of that physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual union that the Creator gave. Godly marriages can become salt and light in this dark and decaying world. They can be a lighthouse piercing the darkness to become a, to become a guiding beacon for the lost. That's a little bunny trail because we don't have time to deal with it fully uh, with the passage that we're dealing with this morning, but I would point you towards this as a valuable resource. What we want to look at this morning is specifically to focus on the reason that's given in verse 4. When we we read the opening words of verse 4 there, uh, let marriage be held in honor among all, it almost sounds like we're tempted to make that a rallying cry for the current debate in the world about the traditional view of marriage between a man and a woman. That's, that's what it sounds like, right? Keep, keep, everyone should hold marriage in honor. And as important as that topic and that debate is, that's not the context here in Hebrews chapter 13. What we're talking about in Hebrews chapter, chapter 13 is for the marriage bed to remain holy or to be undefiled. We're talking specifically about be faithful in your marriage. Respect marriage, and even if you're not married, respect other people's marriage enough to help them keep their vows and stay faithful. And that is actually something that the rest of the world agrees with us about. 
We're not fighting here. The rest of the world, we call it being unfaithful and adultery. The rest of the world calls it cheating or hooking up. But they don't like it either, right? No one likes, everyone thinks deep down that someone should be faithful to them. But sometimes for the rest of the world, it turns into cheating is bad, but getting caught is worse. You know, cheating is not a great thing, but but getting caught, that's the real problem, because that's when problems start. But for the Christian, that's not an option, because our motivation to keep our marriage vows, to stay faithful, is based not on who we are or who are the the followed it has here, but primarily it's based on who God is. God is the one who will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And staying faithful and avoiding getting caught are not the same thing. It's a much higher standard. And to go one step further, if the only reason someone stays faithful is because they're afraid to get caught, that's not really keeping marriage in honor either, is it? Uh, We're asked not just to meet the bare minimum here, but to go far beyond it because... Just like in every other area we've been looking at, in this, the most intimate human relationship possible, we find that God, ultimately, is the one who is worshipped by the right conduct. And God, ultimately, is the one who is being sinned against when that, when, uh, when that vow is broken. And in the end, it will be God who judges both the ex- external actions and the actions of the heart. So there is no, will I get caught or will I not? For the Christian, there is only God is the judge, and he is the one that I'm expected to live for. And finally, keep your life free from the love of money. Uh, There's an interesting little note in in the Greek. The wording is not, I don't know how to explain this. It's not keep your love free from, keep your life free from the love of money. It's your life should be defined by the, the not love of money. It's, it's a word that's been made to be the opposite of the love of money. So your life should positively show the not love of money. And is, is that important? Not really. It just kind of shows that I shouldn't be in charge of translating the Bible. But, but, but what it does, along with all these other examples that we've been looking at, is it shows the difference between making an excuse for yourself to satisfy a standard or realizing the deeper standard that we should be striving for because God is who God is. Um, I know it's still not clear. Okay, let me illustrate it this way. Um, imagine that I could stand to lose a few pounds. Just imagine. <laughs> but Christmas dinner's coming up. Lord willing, it'll be here sooner than we think. And there at Christmas dinner, there is turkey and stuffing and gravy and potatoes and corn and pie, and salad. (laughs) Probably kale salad. Now, what's going to be the harder thing for me to say? Is it going to be harder for me to say, you know what, this year, I'm really going to eat less than I did last year? Or is it harder for me to say, this year, I'm going to eat lots of salad? Well, it's a lot harder to say, this year, I'm going to eat lots of salad, isn't it? And you know why? Because if I say the standard is this year, I'm going to eat less than I ate last year, doesn't matter how much I eat, I'm going to think I ate less than last year. Um, the, the point that I'm trying to make is we do that with how we deal with money. Um, because if the standard is to just not be a lover of money, if the standard is to be not greedy, every single one of us can convince ourselves we're not greedy. It doesn't matter how spoiled we are in North America, how much we have, every single one of us can look at someone who has more and says, I'm not greedy. No one self-identifies as a lover of money. 
That's not how we view ourselves. We can always, we have these self-defense mechanisms in our brain that are always telling us, don't worry, that's not me, I'm not greedy. But it's a lot harder to practice generosity than it is to think we're not greedy. It's a lot easier to actually practice the good. And, and that applies to all these examples today and everything that we do when we start asking, why do I do these good things? It's a lot easier to convince ourselves that we're good enough than it is to really ask ourselves, why am I doing that? So, do we, so to actually begin practicing what it takes to have the opposite of the love of money, to be content with what you have, what are we told to do? Again, the answer is found in who God is. The last half of verse 5. Because God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You don't need to hold on to your stuff so tight if you actually remember who God is. When we hold on to our stuff so tight, it's actually denying what God has said. God has said, I am enough for you and I will be with you. Think of every single thing in your life, every benefit you have, every, every family member, your job, your house. If those things were taken away one by one, what would you be left with? If you are a believer who has come to God through Jesus Christ, you would be left with God. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. This idea of relying on God brings us to a third question that I want to ask ourselves. First, why do you do the things that you do? And next, what are you worshiping because you do it that way? And finally, who do you trust? Who do you trust? If you look at your actions and your motivations, what do they say about who you trust in your life? And this is where verse 6 brings things into focus. For each of these four areas and for every other area we could apply this to. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's one thing to say that. It's an awesome thing to say. We love saying it. Uh, we, we, it's a popular verse. We love sticking it on fridge magnets. We love sticking it on bookmarks. We love slapping it on a bumper sticker. It sounds great. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But anyone can put a magnet that says Hebrews 13.6 on their fridge. The reality is it is only the person who actually, in practice, acts as if God is their provider. It's only the person who puts these things in practice that has any idea what it means to confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That verse comes from Psalm 118. And at that point, in Psalm 118, those words are looking back to a time when God had shown up when his people needed him and rescued them. But the words don't just look back. To the, to, the, to the deliverance. They just don't look back to the time when God saved them. They're also looking forward in that psalm. They're looking forward to the kind of unrestrained worship of God that is going to follow the salvation. Now that we've been saved, now that there's no more to fear from outside pressures, from dangers that can come to man, from our own sin, now that we've been rescued, now we are freed up to worship the God who saves in a way that doesn't need to play it safe. The kind of worship that holds nothing back. There are many ways and many reasons to do things that look like they're good in the world. 
But most of them are not what God requires of us. And it's also not what the world needs from us. But when we think of how daunting it is to seriously hold nothing back and love other people that way, the way God loved us, not carefully or strategically, but wholeheartedly, in true worship, we shrink back. Often we do. Because it's intimidating, isn't it? And then we find reasons in our hearts to justify the fact that we're holding back. We find reasons to say, it's just not fair, we say in our hearts. You can't tell me it's fair to love so-and-so that way, to love so-and-so without reserve. You don't know what he did to me. You can't imagine what she's really like. They wouldn't appreciate it. They certainly don't deserve it. It's not fair to give that kind of love to people. In fact, it's just bad business. It's a waste of resources to give that kind of love to people who aren't going to appreciate it. To which I would say, of course it's not fair. Of course it's not fair. God is a just judge, but his plan for salvation doesn't have anything to do with the word fair. Grace swallows up justice in the gospel. Fair would mean that sinners like you and I would be dying without hope, cut off forever from a holy God. It was not fair when the sinless Son of God gave himself up to die on a cross for your sins and for mine. God's plan spoke a better word than fair. It spoke of grace. In fact, in Jesus' sacrifice, we have the purest example of what it could possibly look like for someone to, without any reserve at all, entrust himself entirely into God's hands and give himself over to God's will. We read about what he did for us. We we read about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, I'd invite you to turn a few pages over to the right to, to end with me there. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but, listen to this, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We can take take comfort knowing that when we falter, when we shrink back, and when we fall short of the standard of holy love that has been set before us, Jesus did not hold anything back. Jesus satisfied God's standard in our place for all time when he gave himself up on the cross. And because he is now risen and seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for those like us, it is now possible, it's possible, because of Jesus' sacrifice, that you and I are able to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We can do it in what might otherwise seem to be insignificant moments in our day and in our week. The way you greet strangers and care for those who need it or honor your parents or love your wife, or respect your husband, or feed the poor, or share what God has given you, every single act has the potential to be an act of worship offered back up in thankfulness. Every single act has the potential to be made acceptable worship to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So in light of all of that, I challenge you sometime this week, prayerfully, 
honestly before God, stop for a minute and ask yourself those questions. Why do I do this? Why, why am I doing that? Please show me, God. Help me to understand myself better. Who am I worshiping because I do this? And finally, who do I trust? If you need to ask God to help you move your trust from whatever else it is that has your trust and put it in the one who deserves it, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Will you pray with me? Father, we are humbled and overwhelmed when we think of the way you have chosen to reveal yourself to ones such as us. We thank you that Jesus was supremely faithful in order to redeem our broken faithfulness. We thank you for the incredible privilege it is to come to you through him and then to be used by you in the lives of other people we come in contact with, to be, to be able to have the privilege of offering you the worship of, of service and love that we can show for others in your great name. We ask you, Lord, to search our hearts and show us our own ways. Holy Spirit, search us and let us know the things that are pleasing to you in our hearts and our lives and our actions and the things that are not. And teach us, Lord, to transform our minds and our hearts by the grace that you have shown us in your Son to worship you fully with our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.